0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 26, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. In the abstract, it's easy to know what your rights are, but when you're in the middle of a situation with police, it's less clear. And even when you do know your rights, you're apt to waive them when the men with guns come knocking. Baltimore defense attorney William Billy Murphy is the narrator of the new film Ten Rules for Dealing with Police. We spoke following an event for the film on Wednesday. We started by discussing a show on which Murphy appears as himself, HBO's The Wire.
1: Well, interestingly enough, uh, if you put aside Cosby, which was a little stylized, you know, overly middle class, uh, that was the first all-black show which depicted black people as being intelligent no matter what their circumstance.
0: That was one of the things that I think actually made the show, made all the characters in the show sympathetic, was because you actually understood the circumstances that they were dealing with and the realities of, of what they were actually into.
1: And how rational their choices were. And, you know, rationality does not guarantee correctness. You know that. But here were people acting rationally under these exceptional circumstances that had never before seen the light of true day, you know?
0: Well, let me uh, ask you more about the direct uh, stuff related to the film. I used to live in Kentucky, and uh, one of the differences between Kentucky and Ohio is that in Ohio, when a police officer stops you, And when he is done executing the purpose of that stop, uh, he is supposed to make you feel free to leave. That is the understanding that police have that exists basically nowhere else in the United States. And people forget that when they're dealing with cops, the questions that cops ask are questions that they ask hundreds of times, often, in a week. All right, mind if I look in the trunk? And they segue directly into these requests for you to waive your rights effortlessly.
1: It's common all over the United States. Um, Police are trained heavily in these areas to do exactly that, get people to waive their rights, and to be as effective about it as they possibly can. No question about
0: it. In interrogations... People, again, don't understand that when they're talking to police, they're talking to people who are trained specifically to get information out of you, especially in cases where you don't know that you're actually providing them with information.
1: There are two factors at work in interrogations and in police stops and encounters with citizens generally. One is the training about how to get people to give up their rights, and then there's the unspoken part that you're dealing with people of inherently less credibility as far as the system is concerned than the typical white cop, or the typical black cop, typical cop. Inherently less credible means that most white judges, most of the time, where there is one story from the police and one story from the black or brown citizen, will always believe the cop. And it's almost as bad if you're a white citizen. You know, cop gets up and says, going 80 miles an hour, gave me some attitude, blah, blah, blah. White citizen gets up and... Almost invariably, judge after judge after judge will take the word of that cop. So the cops rule the courtroom. The cops rule the courtroom. They are almost never disbelieved. Now think of the dynamics behind that. And that's really more important than even the training and whatever. The reason judges are reluctant to disbelieve cops is because if they call a cop a liar or they say I'm not convinced or whatever, cop may lose his job depending on how that judge handles it. If he says, I've weighed the evidence and I have some doubt, and I, 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 I accept officer so-and-so's version of the matter, but blah, blah, blah. If he's artful about it, cop goes on to live another day. But if that judge says to that cop, you know, I think you just lied to me. Oh, man, that's the end of his career. Or the possible end of his career. It subjects him to trial boards, inquiries, and the other. That builds in a built-in bias for the judge to be protective of that cop. Because, you know, if cops frequently lie, and they do, they're going to be frequent statements like that from an informed judiciary, and they're going to be frequent disciplinary actions until people wake up and, after decimating the local police force, realize that they can't lie in court.
0: I know empirical evidence is probably hard to come by on this, but how important can race be uh, for otherwise identical people uh, who are charged?
1: Well, first you got to look at whether they're going to be charged at all. And it's very unlikely if you're white and you're involved in regular drug usage that you're ever going to encounter the police. Uh, on the other hand, if you're black, you're usually in the inner city poor uh, or without substantial means. You can't buy your drugs in quantities where it's economical for them to be delivered or you can pick them up someplace off the street discreetly. So you're going to be involved in the street traffic. You're going to be seen. You're going to be visible. You're likely to be arrested sooner or later or at least rousted or stopped or pushed around or whatever. Uh, So race matters. Now, it, it matters because black and brown people are in this position because of historical reasons. So there's an economic mismatch. And when the economics reach the poverty level, it's easy to bust those people. It's easy to prosecute those people. They don't have the means to defend themselves. They have public defenders, usually from a poorly funded system. And so the combination of historical race issues and the resulting poor economics, you know, create this miserable situation where most of the people get locked up, prosecuted, arrested, investigated. Of blacks and browns in the urban urban setting. Now the federal courts are a little different. The federal courts go after high profile people to let the citizens believe that we don't distinguish between rich or poor, uh, politically connected or not. So they go after elected officials, corrupt politicians, this, that, and the other. But even there, race matters because black politicians are over investigated and over prosecuted compared to their white counterparts. That's changing. Because the levels of corruption that we're seeing now are so extraordinary in the financial sector that those cases are getting the juice. But now on the side, the cases that still dominate the federal courts are black or brown drug gangs involved in violent behavior. Does that answer your question?
0: As a defense attorney, watching this from the inside, what should we do with the drug war in the United States?
1: We ought to as quickly as possible figure out or at least get the political will, and start debating the idea of legalizing drugs. Um, We are in a situation now like we were in alcohol prohibition days. Um, Because drugs have uh, remained illegal for so long, it's illegal to distribute them, it's illegal to ship them, it's illegal to do anything with them. And so we put all of that drug trafficking in the hands of people who have no morality and who can't have their commercial disputes resolved in a court of law. He took my drugs. Well, that would be laughable. Um, you know, he hijacked my shipment judge. I mean, that's laughable. So it's a completely lawless uh, group of people from the beginning who stop at nothing to ply their trade. And the word drug pusher came because they actually pushed the drugs on the population. They are motivated to addict the population and to exploit that addiction by getting repeated sales. And all of this violence and all this gang behavior and all these criminal organizations exist because drugs are illegal. And so we have a choice. Do we want drug abuse with violence, with incipient lawlessness and disrespect for law, with incarceration, with all of the trappings that go along with the criminalization of drugs, Or do we want drug abuse without any of that? And the choice is clear. It was clear with alcohol. It should be clear here. Now, the argument, the counterargument is lots of these drugs are really dangerous. Well, yes, that's true. They won't cease to be dangerous because we legalize them. They will cease to be associated with violence. And one of the things that we've learned over this last 38 years of criminalization is that drug usage is skyrocketing. Drugs are of higher potency than ever. Drugs are easier to get than ever. Sentences are higher and higher year by year. Uh, Rights have disappeared in our court system. Um, And so family destruction is higher than it's ever been in these communities. Uh, The consequences of jail is that you go to a school basically to learn how to become a better criminal. So recidivism is higher and higher. Uh, It's a mess. So we have an ineffective way, costing us gazillions of dollars, uh, where we could devote this money to education and treatment for people who find their way into the abuse of illegal drugs. So which do you want? And people act like there's a third option. There's no third option. Uh, It's either we legalize or we don't. We criminalize or we don't. We incarcerate or we don't. We have drug gangs who are violent or we don't. We have organized criminal activity or we don't. We have skyrocketing family destruction or we don't. Uh, we have AIDS that's out of control because jails are basically an AIDS incubator. They don't say, hey, fellas, you want some condoms? You know, Most uh, uh, prison administrators refuse to do that. They refuse to acknowledge that Situational homosexuality, forced rape, all those kinds of things are rampant in jails. We used to have an old saying when I was doing the day-to-day criminal stuff. uh, 90, let's see, what did they say? 90% of the inmates who are in jail after two years are practicing gay sex, and the other 10% are liars. It's that bad. Unprotected gay sex.
0: It seems like police in a lot of communities that are poor and minority- Police don't have a lot of credibility. That is, people do not believe uh, that their rights are going to be respected. What do projects like this one uh, do to, if you believe that they do, help establish credibility between police and uh, those kinds of communities?
1: Well, I think the thrust of the film is that even though it doesn't always work, even though there are no guarantees that it will work, you have to assert your rights because you have a better chance to survive the criminal justice system if you do. Uh, On the other hand, nothing that I can foresee in my life will change the lack of credibility that the police have in urban areas or the jury's increasingly skeptical reaction to police testimony will have in urban areas. And so in Baltimore City, just like Philadelphia, like New York, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, uh, you're seeing juries reject police testimony time and time and time again, where 30 years ago it would have been accepted. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the cops would have had some credibility. And I think we have to look at what the root of that is in order to solve the problem, and I have a theory about that. And that's why I'm so skeptical about whether or not it will ever change in our lifetime. The big change occurred when we motorized the police. We gave them squad cars. Very little is written about it. Back when the decision was made to motorize the police so that they could be more nimble and more quickly responsive, it was talked about. But after it became fait accompli, we've ignored the impact of having a motorized police force has on uh, attitudes of the police population towards the police and vice versa here's what happened.
0: does that create a disconnect then between them? Huge
1: disconnect because first of all, back in the day when I was coming up, the police walked the beat. you know it wasn't much crime that was regarded as an in, as, as, as a necessary albeit slightly inefficient way of patrolling. so the police got to know which kid in a particular family was the bad kid which family was trying hard to raise their kids, who the good kids were. And there was a trust factor built into that community policing kind of attitude because we got to know that cop. We got to know whether he's a good cop, whether he's a bad cop, whether he was an asshole or whether he was a polite person, whether he cared, whether he didn't care. And so these judgments were individualized. They were person-specific. Now they're not. Now it's 5-0. Now the cops are, from their point of view, going from a very isolated world where they don't know who they're dealing with into a dangerous world, and every episode they investigate is increasingly dangerous. And so their attitude is, these are some dangerous MFs out here. And, you know, be on your guard, have your hand on your gun, I got your back, this kind of stuff. You know, so it's a siege mentality. Then from the black citizen's standpoint, Here they come again. They're going to mess us up. They're going to not honor our rights. They're going to just do the most vile things to us, get out of their way. There's hatred on both sides. Hatred on both sides. Because now when the black community or the brown community reacts with such venom to the police, the police in turn react as human beings everywhere would react. It reinforces these attitudes that they had from the beginning, about this community. And so now the two communities are at total war with each other. You have to see it to believe it.
0: William Billy Murphy is a Baltimore defense attorney and narrator of the new film Ten Rules for Dealing with Police. You can watch the full event at our website, cato.org.